This is the sound of Allegheny Mountain Radio at 6 a.m. on a weekday. As the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys play, Chief Engineer Chuck Nide announces the legal IDs of the stations in this rural network. Good morning. This is Allegheny Mountain Radio. WVMR, Frost, West Virginia, 1370 AM, WVLS, Monterey, Virginia, 89.7 FM, WCHG, Hot Springs, Virginia, 107.1 FM. I heard this sound every weekday morning for years and still didn't realize the true significance of this otherwise administrative and mandated audio. In the Allegheny Highlands, nestled in the hills of Pocahontas, West Virginia, and Highland in Bath County, Virginia, exists a massive, non-commercial radio network. It subsists and thrives by the will of the communities it serves, and the majority of the programming is created locally and follows no specific music format. Growing up in Bath County, I never realized how unusual it was to have a hyper-local network dominate the airwaves. Even in my two years as the morning drive DJ, I still didn't fully grasp how unique our situation was. My name is Sage Tangway, and I am the station coordinator of WVMR, the headquarters of Allegheny Mountain Radio, located in Frost, West Virginia. When I returned to AMR in late 2020, I was informed that the following year brought with it the 40th anniversary of WVMR's first broadcast on July 9, 1981. It dawned on me that I had never given it much thought at all, the first years of broadcasting in these mountains. How did these stations come to be? How does one start a radio station? And why? Had it been hard? Easy? I never knew anything about radio except how to tune one until I moved to Pocahontas County. This is Gibbs Kinderman. He is the first name that comes to people's lips when you have a question about Allegheny Mountain Radio. My early conversations with him always gave me just enough information to have more questions, a big reason why I decided to create this podcast. I loved listening to radio, especially at night, the 50,000-watt stations, just the magic of being hundreds and hundreds of miles away and hearing other people's music and ideas come crackling into my car radio late at night. When I moved to Pocahontas County, it was the first place I'd ever lived that didn't have a radio station, and I didn't have a job. (laughs) So I had plenty of spare time, and I started talking to people about, wouldn't it be cool, you know? Mm, Started in 1978, late 1978, and we were far enough along to incorporate the Pocahontas Communications Cooperative Corporation by April of 1979. See what I mean? How does that happen? Well, that's what we're here to try and figure out. Not just the beginning, but all that has happened since and what might happen next at Allegheny Mountain Radio. As well as what this might mean for anyone in the pursuit of community creativity, independent of conglomerate media or commercialized interest. This is Unique by Nature. Okay, so 1978, 
Gibbs Kinderman in Pocahontas County has a lot of time on his hands and starts to share his idea about having a radio station. Richard Hefner was a friend that I had met through music stuff before, and uh, he was all about it. Gibbs came over and uh, at my house. We were neighbors, and we've known each other for years. And and uh, he came over and talked about it, and I thought, man, this what a great idea because you couldn't hardly get any any radio in, in the, at Mill Point. We could get the uh, Richwood radio station, and uh, during the day, and you could get uh, uh, Wheeling, I think, at night, and and uh, the Grand Ole Opry you get Nashville at night, but there wasn't much radio reception around, so I thought, man, this will be, this is exciting to do this, you know, and, and, uh, but I thought, well, you know, it's a long shot, but. So we started working and talking, um, there was a real enthusiastic response because this is such a big county and so sparsely populated that it was really hard to get news out to people. This is important. Pocahontas County takes up 942 square miles of the eastern border of West Virginia. It has a population density of 9.3 people per square mile. Even more notable than the size is its shape. The county is elongated with only a few main traveling routes. There is significant distance between the northeast and southwest communities, and in times of wild mountain weather, travel is easily impeded. People would say stuff like, well, if somebody I know dies and nobody calls me on the phone to tell me about it, by the time I read it in the newspaper, he's already in the ground. So there was a desire for communication you know, among the communities. There was a need for more timely information back in the days before the internet. People were already trying to improve the connectivity of the county. And there was a lady who was the extension homemaker agent for the WVU Extension Service named Betty Ray Wyford, who was a real community development person. Around this time, she was holding community meetings about what is needed to improve communication among the, you know, within Pocahontas County and the idea of a radio station you know, came up often. So by the time I got here, full of beans and no job, <laughs> and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be fun to have a radio station you could play with? Uh, the idea had already started to, to grow. Even the local school system, which had recently combined into a central high school, had been looking into establishing a community station. Most everybody thought of, you know, non-commercial radio, educational radio, as only being FM, and the observatory couldn't live with that because it sounded too much like a star, so that got shut down. Gibbs is referring to the Green Bank Observatory within Pocahontas County, home to the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope. Pocahontas County, and for that matter, Bath and Highland County, Virginia, are all located within the National Radio Quiet Zone, 
an area of heightened restrictions on radio transmissions due to the scientific research that takes place at the observatory and the military intelligence work at the Sugar Grove U.S. Naval Radio Station. The position of the Green Bank Observatory was a large reason why there wasn't already a radio station in the region. But there was a guy working at the observatory named Omar Boyer, who had been a communications guy in the Army in the Second World War and used his GI Bill to study uh, radio engineering. Omar Boyer became the first engineer of what is now known as WJLS, the Big Dog, out of Beckley, West Virginia. So he learned a lot about radio. He actually raised his family on Flat Top Mountain at the transmitter site um, until they were up through grade school because you didn't have all the remote control stuff and you had to live on site. And then he got a job at the observatory as a technician. So there was a guy in the community that knew a lot about radio. The idea came up, well, if we can't have an FM station, how about an AM station? AM station? Public radio on AM? Is that possible? Well, it turned out it was. And the observatory had no objection to it. So that's why our first station became WVMR AM. It was the first non-commercial AM station to go on the air since 1957. In the lower 48, that is, there were some in Alaska. And it wasn't really a problem. And there was, there was great backing. I mean, the, the Board of Education gave us a one-acre site, 99-year lease for $1, not per year. No, wait, it was per year, yeah. 99 years at a dollar a year. People don't do those things anymore. The county commission put up $25,000 in matching funds. Um, Jay Rockefeller, who had a vacation home in Dunmore that had just been built a few years before, had be just become governor. And he got the Appalachian Regional Commission to kick in $100,000 for equipment and, and building the facility. So we had lots of, lots of support. It really moved along rapidly. But it takes more than funding and equipment to make radio happen. especially community radio. You have to have people. Let's hear from one of them. My name is Glenda Van Reenen. I probably went to work, or at least involved in the radio station, I'd say probably about 1978-79. I had uh, finished school, and my husband and I had moved back to Pocahontas County. We're from here originally. And um, I had seen an advertisement about meetings and involvement in a new radio station. So, of course, I got all excited. It was like, oh, wow, you know, something that's going to happen, maybe something I could get involved in. Glenda recalls the early meetings over things like creating logos and deciding on call letters. But eventually... I was hired as a news reporter. So news reporter, news director is primarily what I did, but working at the radio station, you don't do just one job. You eventually learn to do a little bit of everything, including being in disc jockey, which was never one of the things I thought I ever wanted to do, but I did a lot of that offset. I had never been involved in radio before. 
But when I went to school, I decided to major in communications. I had a couple of classes that excited me, and one of them was radio and television broadcasting. You always hear that funny story about the light bulb goes off in your head, and that is exactly what happened to me. I love this, and you know, that was one class that I never had to struggle to go home um, to do all my schoolwork. You know, it was like I couldn't wait until I read the next chapter. So I learned, you know, a lot of background basic information, things like fairness doctrine, blah, 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 um, all those kinds of things. So when the opportunity happened here in the county, I was blown away. Glenda's story resonates with me as someone who also became involved with radio during college. But it's important to note that the majority of people involved with Allegheny Mountain Radio, and perhaps in community radio all over, come to it by a variety of paths. Let's hear directly from some of the original staff members and volunteers. It was fun, (laughs) just to say. I mean, it was, you know, who knew? I mean, I'd never done anything with radio. I didn't know squat about radio. Most of us didn't know anything about radio. We were, there were some people that came in, maybe from Corporation for Public Broadcasting or somewhere, people, or maybe just other radio stations, people who were knowledgeable about doing radio who helped provide some early training for us because we were just all a bunch of people bumbling around trying to (laughs) trying to figure out how to how to do something this is rachel tompkins at the time her training was in education and program administration and she enjoyed bringing her kids to the family farm in pocahontas county during the summer and the summer of I guess this must be 81 since we're doing 40th anniversary. So Rebecca would have been seven and Daniel would have been four. And we were at the farm. And because Gibbs and Susan's kids are about the same age as mine, we hung out together. And so Gibbs came wandering into my yard one day and said, we're thinking of starting a community radio station. And would you like to help? So I said, okay. No, I never had any broadcast uh, experience whatsoever. My name is Norris Long. Uh, My only experience was I love all genres of music ever since I was a teenager and got my first record player to the times while I was in the service spending a lot of my money on music. At that time, they were either... uh, reel-to-reels or LPs, which I would try and scribe to reel-to-reels. Radio was just impossible to get. As a kid, if I heard any radio during the daytime, it would have been Harrisonburg, Virginia, sitting in a car next to the railroad tracks using it as an antenna. (laughs) But it worked. Or you waited till nighttime after the sun went down, and then I had a, uh, I'm a teenager of the 60s, and so then it was finding out which rock station to listen to. I also spoke to Pat Keller, 
she and her husband Bob were deeply involved with AMR for over a decade. The radio was important to us uh, for several years. Bob went on the air that summer of 81. Um, he just really liked the radio station. And uh, the year after the radio went on the air, 82, I went in and started doing some programs. I had a baby in May of 81. That's why I was a year later. Um, I did after school on the road is what it was called. I did a little of everything. Um, I, uh, I was on the air. I was on the board of directors. I was president of the board of the directors for a few years. Like Glenda, Pat also had previous experience with radio. Um, when I was a 4-H agent in Huntington, um, we did um, a weekly program report on the air. I mean, we did it on the Real to Real and then took it to the radio station, and it was aired each week, but that was all. I have a master's degree in communication arts where we did some things. When we come back, we'll learn more about the early days of incorporation, preparing the volunteer staff for broadcasting, as well as some key disputes that were arising between the budding station and the community institutions. There were some who were what we would call the powers that be, weren't happy with it. This is Unique by Nature. So far, we've heard from several of the first broadcasters of WVMR, West Virginia Mountain Radio, about how they became involved with the Pocahontas Communications Cooperative Corporation. Let's hear again from Norris Long. I attended a couple of those meetings, and I was working full-time, and I felt that I did not have the time to be able to be directly involved with that aspect of it. And so much of it involved things that were policy-making, shall I say, uh, on a large grand scale. So it was going to have to take a lot of work and pushing for political pressure to get this in here because we are in an FCC quiet zone. Well, they did get it established with the help of the late Senator Robert Byrd in being able to provide radio service to underserved rural areas. And that's how WVMR came to be in effect. As I mentioned before, Pocahontas is a large and long county. Though there were initially plans to have the station in Marlinton, which is the main town and county seat, Gibbs tells me that this wouldn't work for a number of geographic and technological reasons. Well, one really important thing was the decision to put the station in the geographical center of the county where it is now. And that's why the high school is there, too. And we knew we wanted to have the transmitter there because it was equidistant from Droop and Durban. With the sweet deal of a 99-year lease for a dollar per year from the school board, the location settled on Dunmore, West Virginia. So building buildings, buying equipment, just a lot of stuff went on. And Jim Dolan was real instrumental in that. guy that had been an engineer at the observatory was a real... Totally independent-minded, plus a banjo player. And those kind of go together. Jim Dolan eventually served for years as the chief engineer. So, yes, they could have a radio station. 
They had the funding, they had the people, they figured out how to abide by the quiet zone regulations. Now that they had these initial questions answered, things got a bit more complicated. The institutional support was soon to be challenged. When the radio station started, there were some who were what we would call the powers that be, weren't happy with it. Well, it was a bunch of daggone hippies up there. To call Bob Keller, my husband, a hippie, was really pushing it. As with any change that happens in a small community, there were myriad opinions on how the station should operate and what function it would serve. As Pat and Gibbs describe, these differences settled into two distinct camps. It was a difficult time for the people who were planning, because some people had one idea, some people had another. Some of, some of them wanted to do just all-can programs, things that we just would import from other places, and others wanted to do local. Really changed the course of the, of the operation. A dispute over who was going to control what went on the air, which arose in early 1980. Um, a guy named Bob Brown, who had been the manager of WOAY radio and TV in Oak Hill, he was hired by the board as a consultant, and at the first public meeting to introduce him to the people in the community that were interested in radio, he started talking about, well, in a place like this, the only way you can operate is to have an automated station. And all the people, that, most of the people that were interested were talkers, writers, musicians, you know, people who wanted to use it to express their own creativity. So that went over like a lead balloon. I can imagine. One of the joys of working for a community radio station is creating content. In my opinion, hyperlocal news reporting is arguably the most valuable asset to our communities. It's that part of the programming that actually connects our listeners to the station and to each other. And then the conversation went from there to like, well, if we have local programming, who's going to decide what goes on the air? If, if we don't do the automated thing. And the bylaws were set up so that the board was elected. There were three institutional seats on the board, the school board, the county commission, and the extension service. And the other board members were elected by people who volunteered to work at the stations and just, you know, citizens that were interested. Uh, the, the institutional board members felt that nothing should go on the air that wasn't vetted by them, you know, when it came to news stuff. They didn't want anything controversial. So there was a big parting of the ways. A community radio station is always going to see a certain level of controversy. When you are reporting on people who are literally your neighbors or even distant family members, tensions can run high, even if they remain under the surface. However, during these seminal moments of WVMR's development, it all eventually boiled over. So when the election was, first election was held for board members in the early spring of 1981, to show you the level of tension around it, um, it was a mail ballot. And because everybody was suspicious, all the ballots were mailed to the sheriff who kept them in, in her safe, his first woman sheriff. And she brought them in a lockbox to the, to the annual meeting where they were going to be counted. And the prosecuting attorney was there representing the institutional board members and 
the guy he'd beaten for prosecuting attorney was there representing the other the other group and it was it was very tense and so uh, the locals won the board members who wanted the institutional approach and were running for election and re-election were all defeated and uh, the citizen insurgent artistic whatever you call it component one and shortly after that conflict kind of started we had a guy came in as a consultant to help us with programming who was from potter county pennsylvania which is kind of the pocahontas county of pennsylvania and his background was his family ran the the weekly paper like the pocahontas times of pennsylvania so he was kind of tuned into what was going on but he was very much free speech guy. And he got into it with the president of the school board. And then it somehow got worse. When the vote was announced the way that it came down, which changed the balance of power on the board, the institutional representatives left the meeting. So before we actually were able to go on the air, the school board and the county commission withdrew their, their board members and we had a, a little time there where everybody was thinking, oh my God, now what? How can we possibly do this without, you know, institutional support? They thought, you know, well, this ain't going to happen without us. If you recall, it had been these very institutions, the school board, the county commission, that had earlier pulled out all of the stops to fund and contribute to the dream of a local radio station. What is so surprising to me about this part of the history is that there's no way I could have guessed what went down back then by looking at the present. Today, Allegheny Mountain Radio works fairly closely with these same institutions, as well as those in Bath and Highland. We announce and report on every meeting. They inform us when they have events going on. Trying to imagine our modern programming in the context of a bitter power struggle between the stations and the community institutions is uncomfortable, and maybe even impossible. If there were a time for this nascent project to collapse in on itself, this would have been it. But of course, if that had been the case, we wouldn't be here, would we? And we said, oh yeah, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to do it by Pioneer Days. For those of you not from around here... Pioneer Days is the biggest celebration of the year in Pocahontas County. It usually happens the week after the 4th of July, and it's kind of like a county homecoming, big, big event. Not as big now as it was back then, but if you can imagine the streets in front of the, the banks over here being totally packed with people dancing <laughs> through the night, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. The kids loved it because we lived in the country and they got to come to town and run around on their own right. in the dark. <laughs> so it, that was kind of a symbol. If we can pull it off by Pioneer Days, then that really proves something. Yeah. So here they were, only a handful of months out from a huge community celebration that would serve as their maiden broadcast. A stressful event in normal circumstances, now heightened because of the politics surrounding the station. With not much time to lose, the volunteers got down to the business of preparing themselves to be air-ready. Of course, back in the 80s, they didn't have the ease of digital music, 
Again, here's Rachel Tompkins. The first thing we did was there was somebody who was training us how to become disc jockeys so we could actually uh, play records on the air. And of course, it was all vinyl. And uh, so I remember holding my finger on, on the records to, before they started. And the, the key thing was not to have them go when they start. I don't know whether you guys still have any vinyl that you use, but anyway. Pat Keller also attested to the difficulty of the technology. Uh, when the radio had a sort of a practice session, Bob just couldn't wait to, to get the radio tuned to it. And then um, uh, Todd Shreve was the one who did the sort of the practice uh, session, and he told Bob later, said, you know, we used, we used records that were 33 and a third, and you had to get the needle put in the right groove to get the music to start. And Todd said he was shaking so much on his first time on the air that he could hardly do it. I, I never really did disc jockey. Mm-hmm. I was so inept at ke- keeping the, you know, the record thing going and doing it well that um, I never, I never did music. After the break, WVMR takes it to the air. This is unique by nature. Eventually, July arrived, bringing with it WVMR's self-imposed deadline to get on the air. Their first day of broadcasting was not without its little hiccups. The first program song was Emmy Lou Harris singing the green rolling hills of West Virginia, and the DJ was Annabelle Schaffner, who was a volunteer, who was the postmaster at Dunmore. And she read the, you know, the sign-on stuff, and then she was supposed to introduce the preacher who was going to do a blessing on the, on this new operation, Reverend Henderson, and couldn't get him on the air. So she's like, uh, and now Reverend Henderson. And it didn't work. Somebody said, push the button, Annabelle. So instead of Reverend Henderson, they got the song, How Many Hearts Have You Broken Today? She got relaxed during that, and we went on. Since it was Pioneer Days, they had also decided to have correspondence reporting from the festivities in downtown Marlinton. Glenda Van Reenen, well, she was massively pregnant, and she was going to be the news lady, and she did the first live remote broadcast from the bank steps. It's where the bank parking lot is now. A really neat old building has since been torn down. We tried our first broadcast live. Where the bank is now, the old bank was, right there on the corner where City National is now. And it had a great big porch, which of course acted like a stage 
for years and years and years. And so we set up there. And so I had one kitchen chair. I was six months pregnant. And we had a telephone that was on the ground. Yeah, you know, just sitting on the ground. We didn't even have a table. And a tape recorder. Uh, the goal was, you know, you take the tape recorder out and you talk to people, you know, everybody. Uh, how, you know, how are you enjoying it? Or you try to talk to, you know, the person who's in charge of the parade and all that. So then I, you would run back to the porch. And I can't say I actually run. I probably waddled. And you would go back to the porch and sit down in your chair, uh, call the station and tell them you're going to get ready to send something. And we had some kind of little gadget, I think, nothing like today, that you took a part of the phone off, you screwed the phone off, and you screwed this in, and you plugged the tape recorder into it. And so then, you know, you would hit play, and it would go through this. So you would have to do this numerous times. It actually worked. I don't know how smooth it was because I wasn't at the other end. So, uh, but yeah, that was our first live broadcast. And, you know, after that, uh, as you learn more and more and technology becomes better and better, you know, WVMR went everywhere. I mean, doing a live remote the first day you're on the air is just crazy. We did all this stuff that you shouldn't do, but managed to pull most of it off. <laughs> I'd say... These days, we have a similar remote broadcasting device that we use mainly for live announcing and interviews on location. It's a nerve-wracking process, but imagining it within the context of the first broadcast is wild to me. In many ways, I wonder if some of WVMR's success at pulling off these things grew from the amateur nature of the operation. When you don't know exactly what to do, the possibilities are endless. But still, after achieving this first broadcast for Pioneer Days, they decided to regroup. We weren't totally ready. We, we broadcast for Pioneer Days, and then we laid off for a month or so before we came back with, you know, daily broadcasts. I remember them sitting at a table in downtown Marlinton during Pioneer Days. I guess that had to have been 1981. And it didn't really dawn on me that I was going to be involved with it. But Norris would soon become very involved in WVMR. Here, he recalls his initial involvement with broadcasting. I am the second oldest programmer on Allegheny Mountain Radio, as it is now. And I started around Labor Day weekend of 1981. And I am now entering my 40th year of programming. How old were you then? Wait a minute, how's that new math go? <laughs> that would have been making me about 34. God, why not? Can't believe I was that young. B.J. Sharp Goodmanson became the first station manager, and she called me and said, Norris, we would like to have a bluegrass program on the air. Would you be interested in hosting that? And I thought that would be kind of neat to share the music that uh, I was getting into. I had only been into uh, the music for about seven years at that time. So I came up here with my own bluegrass inventory in a box because I had no idea what was on hand here. 
and I was a stickler about knowing what I was playing before I played it. That first session on the air, our chief engineer, Steve Heimel, sat at the control panel. I sat in a chair adjacent, and I told him that I would raise my hand when I was ready to speak, or I would raise my hand and tell him, play it, whatever, because I knew what I wanted to hear. I, I knew how the radio should be presented and keeping it really, even then, as professional as possible. So the program went over beautifully, and I was quite happy with it. Our engineer was very, very happy with it. The next week, our general manager, Gibbs Kinderman, sat at the control panel. I sat at the same chair, tried to do the same thing. Poor Gibbs, he was just as novice as I was. And there were so many flubbubs during the program that whenever it was over with, I said, okay, Gibbs, teach me how to use the equipment and I'll be here. And that was it. And that was just over a span of two weeks. And uh, I've pretty well worn out a couple of chairs since then. Steadily, the ragtag crew of Rebels and Dreamers established regular programming, not only in music, but also in local news. We'll hear from Pat Keller and then Rachel Tompkins. We started out with a a a one-day-a-week news program about the board meeting or county commission meeting. Gibbs asked me if I would do some interviews with people because they wanted to do news. Part of the idea was to do news and public affairs on issues that were important. I think that's in the mission statement, something about information on community issues. Um, and so that's how my involvement continued, with doing interviews on what was the hot issue of the day, which is like a lot of the same issues we've had over the last 40 years, which is uh, The issue then was the creation of wild and scenic rivers, the designation of the rivers, the Monongahela National Forest, as wild and scenic rivers. We will learn more about this in episode two, but covering important issues in a small area sometimes presents controversy and bias. Glenda notes WVMR's specific approach to such situations. Those early years, kind of defining, you know, what the station was going to do. And we certainly, I think, I don't know, it wasn't written, it was sort of unwritten that we would not do investigative pieces. You know, we would report on what was happening, but we wouldn't go out looking for things. I was interested to find out what the financial situation of the station was at this point in time. Well, we got the startup money, and, you know, it was really weird. I mean, every grant we applied for, we got. So we, were, we went from having nothing to having all this money, and we had a, a the startup grant from CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, that allowed us to have, I think we had at one point early on, four people on the staff. The salaries were low, but, you know... In Pocahontas County in those days, there weren't all that many great jobs around anyway. And But when that money ran out, we went from having that size staff to a circumstance where 
the only staff, Jim continued as the engineer, pretty much as a volunteer, but Glenda and I were the only staff people. Um, and I think we were paid half time or something like that, she'll remember. So it was a big transition. And it was great for the, for the station, too, because we had to go from being grant-supported to being community-supported. So donations from listeners and business underwriting became really important. And, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune, right? So we weren't responsible to the grant people. We were responsible to the listeners, which was a good motivation to do stuff people enjoyed. <laughs> this is a key component of community radio. Ultimately, we are here to serve the listeners. Instead of commercial advertisers or corporate stockholders, the Sound of Allegheny Mountain Radio is most influenced by the calls, letters, and emails we receive every day from listeners. Requesting a song, complaining about a DJ's voice, asking for more information about community events, listing a yard sale, or even just calling to share a few encouraging words with the current on-air host. He walks into the classroom, cool let's flow. Gibbs told me that he personally didn't like how public media fundraising of the time was comprised of great programming interrupted by long, pitch-heavy breaks. So WVMR sought to heighten the quality and communal factor of their fundraising broadcasts. We decided that the fundraising should be entertainment, and we our fundraiser weeks were kind of a, a showcase of talent in the community. You know, people came in and choirs sang and uh, had all different programming during fundraiser week, which we did twice a year in those days in December and in June. And uh, the highlight of it, for me anyway, was on the Sunday we would have from noon until 6 p.m., which is when we went off the air in those days, live bluegrass with different groups every half hour, bluegrass and old-time music. And people would come in, in in the the fall fundraiser, it would be in the studio, and in the spring fundraiser, it would be out on the lawn. There was one fundraising attraction that I hadn't heard about before. Again, Pat Keller. One of the most interesting fundraisers was the cow patty contest. I was thinking about that this morning. The cow patty contest was, um, we had, uh, we took a field, and then uh, William Dilley, the surveyor, marked off into a grid, and we sold chances. And you picked a number that you wanted where you thought that the cow would drop its patty. So um, so that did raise some money, but that was fun. I never thought I'd spend an afternoon waiting for a cow to drop its patty. <laughs> so, but we made money on it. We did a, we did a lot of things, auctions, um, just a lot of different things. And it, it was fun, too. Oh, we also did, we also sponsored the circus. I was looking through some notes I made. Um, we sponsored the circus a couple of times, and that, that was really fun. I, I took care of it one time, Bob took care of it another, and uh, 
uh, Bob got to ride the elephant into the show. Another time, Annabelle Schaffner, who did the Sunday morning gospel music, she got to ride the elephant into the te- the tent. So, uh, yeah, that was a, that was another one of the fun things that we did. And oh. People people wanted to know if they could collect the elephant manure. They thought they could grow giant tomatoes. <laughs> Talk about unique by nature. And in the, on those days, you'd have you know maybe a hundred or hundred and fifty people in the spring one coming through the station, uh, and it really made the, the, the link between the community and the station really strong, especially strong on those weeks, and let people feel like it was their station, you know, they could come in whatever. It was very successful. This was the way AMR conducted its fundraisers up until the COVID-19 pandemic. Keeping safe from the spread of the coronavirus made it impossible to host so many people at the stations. Hopefully, as infection rates continue to drop, we will be able to revitalize this tradition. One of my favorite stories, uh, if you're the sign-on person on a radio station, usually you operate on high-octane coffee. And I went in one morning filling in, and there was no coffee. Oh my God. So I went on the air and I started moaning about no coffee. And about 20 minutes later, this guy showed up with a pound of coffee <laughs> and made the coffee <laughs> before he went out to work. That was community radio. Yeah. Next time on Unique by Nature, we'll learn more about the early days of community radio in Pocahontas, West Virginia, and the natural disaster that cemented its role as an information source. Unique by Nature is created, hosted, and produced by Sage Tangway. Our videography is by Danny Cardwell, and our soundscape by Jake Heyer. We'd like to offer special thanks to Richard Hefner and the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys for the use of their music, the Pocahontas Opera House for the use of their stage for socially distanced interviews, and to our guests, Gibbs Kinderman, Glenda Van Reenen, Patricia Keller, Rachel Tompkins, and Norris Long. Unique by Nature is a production of Allegheny Mountain Radio. For more information, visit AlleghenyMountainRadio.org or find us on Facebook, where we post videos of some of the interviews. Thank you for listening. <laughs>